to our audience members, hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We have a large number of you tuning in with us, which is really good to see. We're excited to be running this webinar where we discuss the safety benefits of cooperative ITS and automated driving. My name is Elise and I will be moderating this session and can provide any technical support. If you are experiencing any issues, you can contact me by using the chat box in your webinar toolbar. This session is proudly brought to you by Osroads. Osroads supports its member organisations, those listed on this slide, to deliver an improved road transport network. Osroads members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of roads valued at more than $200 billion. Our collective approach delivers value for money, encourages shared knowledge, and drives consistency for road users. In terms of housekeeping, we have two presenters joining us and their presentations will run for approximately 35 minutes altogether. We then have 15 minutes at the end where we answer your questions. Just a note, we are recording today's session and we will email you after the webinar when it's available. The slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. We do like our webinars to be interactive and we encourage you to participate by asking our presenters any questions. You can type your questions into the questions box that you can see into the sidebar at any stage. When submitting your question, please indicate the slide number your question relates to. We'll then answer them at the end during question time. So as you may know, this webinar is based on a report that Osteroids released a that Osteroids released a couple of weeks ago. You can download this report in the handout section in your sidebar or on the website shown on this slide. The objective of this session is to give you an overview of the findings of this research report. So as I mentioned previously, we have two presenters, both joining us from Melbourne. Our first presenter is our very own project manager of automated vehicles, Chris Jones. Chris is currently responsible for preparing frameworks for the deployment of automated vehicles across road operations and registration and licensing. Hi Chris, how are you today? I'm good, thanks Elise. Okay. Uh, just a quick note to our audience, this is Chris's second time back. We ran another webinar on connected and automated vehicles back in June and you can view this recording of this session on our website. So our second presenter today is Dr. David Logan, who is a Senior Research Fellow at Monash University Accident Research Centre. He specialises in road safety strategy development and scenario modelling, real-world crash investigations and safety benefits of advanced vehicle technologies. Hi David, thank you for joining us. Welcome everyone, it's good to be here. So for the agenda today, we have Chris presenting first and he will cover the project background and introduction. David will then present topics based on the research report such as project aims and literature review, estimation of safety benefits and the results, as well as barriers and issues. He will then conclude the presentation and we'll then have the Q&A time. So it's my pleasure to hand it over to Chris. Thanks, Elise. Just uh, sharing my screen with you all, I'll be just a minute. Okay, thank you and thanks for the introduction. 
Um, I'm just briefly going to talk to you about the Austroads CAV program as an introduction to today's webinar. Connected and Automated Vehicles is one of four high-level overarching program areas for Austroads. We employ a small team of specialists who are working closely with key government industry stakeholders to establish the required supporting frameworks to introduce connected and automated vehicles. My role is preparing Australia's road transport agencies for the introduction of automated vehicles across registration licensing systems and road operations. I have three colleagues who are working to prepare for the introduction of cooperative ITS or wireless communications between vehicles, infrastructure and other devices. Our work fits into a broader national program which includes a national strategic policy component and vehicle standards representation at the Commonwealth or national level. This is run uh, through the uh, Department of Infrastructure and Regional Development who also uh, represent Australia on international working committees related to vehicle automation such as Working Party 1 and Working Party 29. The National Transport Commission are leading reform of Australia's transport laws and regulations and you'll note there's a number of discussion papers that they have at the moment related to automated vehicles. Um, while jurisdictions are responsible for introducing national reforms into local legislation, making changes to existing road and registration licensing systems, and I think probably most visibly at the moment, conducting trials around cooperative ITS and automated vehicles. Um, there are wide ranging potential impacts from vehicle automation. Um, the, the road safety benefits in particular are compelling and, and something that most people internationally are pointing to as a benefit from, from automated driving in particular. Our, our webinar today will focus on six connected and automated driving applications, things like lane keep assist, forward collision warning and auto, automated emergency braking from a road safety perspective. However, just to go back through what we've achieved in Austroads across 2017, um, we've released three uh, research reports and guides uh, and this safety report will be the final report for us in, in 2017. Earlier this year we released the guidelines for trials of automated vehicles in Australia which was a joint publication with the National Transport Commission. The guidelines support state and territory road agencies in providing exemptions or permits for trials and give greater certainty to industry on conditions for trials. Our second report highlighted the physical, digital and road operational changes needed to support vehicle automation. And finally, our investigation into the issues associated with automated vehicles on registration and licensing. This report supports our registration and licensing members consider the impacts uh, of potential changes to licensing components such as driver training, driver licensing programs such as GLS, uh, registration uh, components such as vehicle body types and uh, codes, uh, roadworthiness system modification systems and crash repair systems and also to compulsory third-party insurance. Now on to the, uh, the, today's webinar in particular and the, uh, the background to this project. But just before I get there, I'd like to thank the working group who participated in reviewing draft versions of the report um, that we're releasing and supporting the publication through their board members. Um, we, I've listed each one of them, Jeff McDonald uh, from Queensland, Prasanna, John Wall from New South Wales, Jeremy Burnett from the department, Fiona Cartwright 
uh, Blake Harris, Chris Brennan, Dirk van der Velt and Colin Brodie from New Zealand. Uh, in particular, I'd like to thank John Wall from Transport for New South Wales and Stuart Balingal, who were the initial um, project managers and, and those that bid for the project initially uh, through the Austroads process. Um, so they, they, I guess, ran the first six to nine months of the project and since I've taken over um, from there. Um, I'm going to get to a couple of definitions. Um, just We want to be really clear on some terminology for today's webinar, so I'd like to introduce two terms that we use when discussing um, cabs. Uh, automated vehicles. These uh, automated vehicles are those in which some aspect of the safety critical control function, uh, the steering, throttle or braking, occurs without direct driver input. Um, whereas cooperative ITS, also sometimes referred to as a connected vehicle, are those which use wireless technology to communicate between vehicles, roadside infrastructure and other road users. Uh, now there is definitely some overlap between the two areas. Uh, and we are seeing the two technologies converge uh, over time. But while some levels of automation could be implemented without connectivity, the point we'd like to make here is that it's likely that to achieve the higher levels of automation, um, connectivity will be required to achieve its full potential. We'd also like to introduce the uh, levels of automation for those who aren't familiar with it. I think probably most people are by now. Uh, but it gives us, it, it, we've, we've put this graphic here to give you a snapshot view of the levels of automation and also their likely uh, deployment timelines. Um, so connected and automated vehicles are already part of our fleet and their capability is a precursor to what's coming later on. The way we think about the journey to full automation is illustrated in this slide. Right now we have an existing three levels of automation in our fleet all which require the driver to undertake most parts of the driving task. Um, so we have currently vehicles with no automation, some with level one automation, which provides driver assistance features such as speed assistance technology or lane keeping assist, and increasingly vehicles with level two automation, which combines driver, driver assistance features into a greater package. Um, such as a com combination of lane keeping assist and adaptive cruise control. In the coming five to ten years, we expect to see vehicles in the fleet which will have level three and level four automation. Level three is an automated driving system that can perform most tasks but still requires a person to respond to requests to intervene. Uh, at level four, that requirement for human intervention is no longer necessary. Um, and in some cases, we're seeing vehicles um, already on the market at level four, um, which which do not have a driver control as, as, at all. And in those cases, I'm referring to things like the small, lower speed driverless shuttle buses that um, are being deployed in some places across Australia. Now, depending on who you talk to, we may see the introduction of fully automated vehicles uh, beyond that time frame, beyond the 10 year horizon. Um, however, that is the subject of some debate. So now I'm just going to get to the specifics of the project. Um, in Australia, road trauma in Australia and New Zealand, sorry, road trauma remains a significant problem. I'll comment specifically on the Australian situation here, but what this graph illustrates is that we're seeing a 
a longer term reduction in road trauma Australia across Australia thanks to our efforts that we've been that have put in place since the 1960s. But somewhat worryingly, over the last three years, we've seen road trauma heading in the wrong direction after this long period of reductions. Also worryingly, um, there, while some of the growth in road trauma may be attributed to population growth and therefore increased exposure to crashes, we're also seeing a rise in the number of fatalities per 100,000 people in Australia. This is really driving us to look for new solutions beyond the traditional focus of road safety in Australia. One of the great quotes I read on, uh, I was following on social media from the Australasian Road Safety Conference was from former NHTSA Administrator Dr Mark Rosekind, he said that, who said we really need to look uh, for solutions beyond what we're employing at the moment and to those that we haven't really thought of yet. So we need to, but for safety innovation we need to be able to need to look beyond just more of the same. And it's our strong belief that connected and automated vehicles and, or connected and automated driving will play a significant role in that and allow our Austroads members to harness the emerging benefits that they offer. So we asked ourselves at the, quest, at the start of this project, what are some of the key questions we want to answer um, around connected and automated vehicles and their road safety benefits? Um, and the project aimed uh, to answer some of these key questions, such as what are the range of applications with road safety benefits? And just to give us an initial rank of those applications uh, at a, high, a low, medium and high potential road trauma benefit. We're very interested in what is the likely timing for introduction across the new vehicle fleet and into the crash, into the on-road vehicle fleet. We're interested in how long it will take uh, so, so we're interested in human factors questions such as what are the underlying human factors issues associated with warning type systems and also human factors issues with systems that can take control of the primary uh, control features of the vehicle. Um, we're also interested in an estimation of benefits based on real world crashes and therefore what that would likely uh, uh, lead to as an overall trauma reduction across the Australian crash vehicle pool. And we're also interested in what are some of the key assumptions or limitations or, or systems that would need to be in place for us to realise those full benefits. So I'm now going to hand over to Dr David Logan from the Monash University Accident Research Centre who was the lead author on this project. And just before I hand over, just a quick note to pose any questions you have in the text box on the side of the control panel. Thanks, David. Thanks, Chris. And just as Chris said, um, um, Chris and I are both very happy to answer any of your questions. Just make sure that you note down the slide that your question relates to, and that'll help us um, see what you're um, what you're referring to as quickly as we can. The aims of the project were to, um, as Chris has already suggested, to identify a selection of cooperative and automated driving applications that we felt were probably would have substantial road safety benefits in the future. And I think one, one of our criteria was to identify also those technologies that we thought would probably form the fundamental building blocks of, of more fully automated vehicles at level four and level five. Because that's the way the systems are developing. We develop individual applications first and then those applications are put together as a whole package to, to create a, um, a vehicle that can do everything hopefully. And then the main focus for us was to estimate the expected serious injury savings of each given full adoption among the light vehicle fleet 
Now that's a pretty big assumption and um, we, we have already talked in the introduction about estimating the timing of, of implementation but we probably didn't pay as much, much um, heed to that question because it is quite a complicated question and as the project evolved we, we decided that it was probably better just to look at the, the ultimate benefits in the long term and maybe we can look at for a future future work into the, the timelines of implementation and also some of the complexities of implementation at a, at a later date. The project stages are shown there in the in the graph at the bottom of the slide. And the, the main the main focus of this project and probably what makes it quite notable is that at the middle stage there, the calculation of per crash safety benefits, we used an approach that hasn't been used a lot, but it was probably the first time it's been applied to this sort of a problem. It's looking at real world crashes. These are actual serious injury crashes from around Australia. And using experienced crash investigators to make an estimate as to whether that crash would have occurred had the technologies in question been fitted to their vehicles. The literature review was quite a challenging task because there's been a lot of a lot of research done around the world into the potential benefits of these safety applications. And also there's been a lot of work done um, in trials and other, other things. But we identified six primary application classes and, and keeping in mind that we wanted to identify those that were key to direct benefits in terms of fatalities and serious injury reductions. We focused mainly on the first two categories there. Um, collision avoidance and hazard detection, the primary safety applications, and these include things like intersection movement assist, right turn assist, and cue warnings. Vulnerable road user safety um, applies to pedestrians, motorcyclists, and cyclists, and includes things like motorcycle approaching indication and pedestrian detection. Because we assessed that some of these weren't, didn't have the potential to save as many deaths and serious injuries as some of the other applications, we didn't include any of those in the final assessment. And then the other four categories tend to assist the driver, but they don't have direct safety benefits. They may have indirect benefits by making the driver better prepared with in-vehicle signage, for example, with speed zone warning, stop sign warning, road weather alert systems like spot weather impact warnings. All Both of these categories have indirect safety benefits, but they don't prevent fatalities and serious injury crashes on their own. The last two categories um, of note, post-crash notification systems were specifically excluded. This includes things like e-call that I, uh, I believe is now mandatory in Europe on new vehicles. We didn't include the, the assessment of the post-crash systems because we wanted systems that would prevent crashes rather than improve recovery and response after a crash. Moving quickly now to the key element of this project. Because we didn't have the ability within the project to predict the possible benefits of upwards of 20 to 25 safety applications that have been either trialled or, or tested around the world, we wanted to identify those that addressed the key Australian and New Zealand crash problems. And these problems are probably of similar nature in many, many places around the world. In Australia and New Zealand, the single biggest character, sorry, the single biggest crashed, single most significant crash type is carriageway departures. They comprise practically a third of all fatality and serious injury crashes in Australia and New Zealand. Intersections are another key area. Um, even, even rural intersections contribute to that with about a quarter of all fatality and serious injury coming from intersections. And finally, same direction crashes between about 10 and 20% across the both jurisdictions. Finding applications that address these three problems 
would address between about 60 and 75% of all fatality and serious injury in the, these two jurisdictions. And as I said, probably similarly across the world. And as I said earlier, we wanted to look at those applications that, that made up the fundamentals of self-driving technology and also those that had the potential to be deployed over the next five to 10 years realistically. And there's a lot of judgment involved in that. And I'll get to the technologies that we selected in a little while, but first I just wanted to cover a couple of slides on how we evaluated these benefits. There were two phases. The first was to look at the benefits per crash, and this is where we use the real world database. It comes from a project called ANSYS, the Australian and New Zealand, sorry, the Australian National Crash In-Depth Study, which involves 800 real world cases involving people who've been admitted to hospital as a result of a crash. There are no fatalities in this database. It's, it's purely serious injury, hospitalising serious injury cases. And these were primarily in Victoria, but we had a sample in, in uh, southeast Australia, the rest of southeastern Australia as well, in New South Wales. Of the 800 cases, we selected 250. We had a subset of 250. And these were cases where we had more detailed information regarding the driver. This data set comprises over 1,500 variables, and it involves everything from an interview with the driver where we established what their stage was pre-crash, what they did during the crash and immediately prior to the crash, their fatigue, uh, we, we look at their medications and any, um, any medical conditions they might have, as well as alcohol and, and both um, legal and illegal drug involvement. We do an inspection of the vehicle to identify the, how the vehicle protected its uh, occupant in the, in the crash and we also visit the crash site to see what the environmental factors that might have contributed as well as to verify what the driver said about the crash, because many people being traumatised in hospital are not uh, always clear on the circumstances. And by putting together all of these um, lines of investigation, we can get a really good idea about what happened in the crash, and therefore a really good idea about how the technologies might have intervened in order to prevent crash from occurring. To evaluate individual crashes, we asked two main questions. The first of these is, would the application trigger or would the technology activate? And the reason we've got two sub-questions there is because we looked at both warning technologies and automated technologies. So therefore, we, need to make a, we needed to make a judgment about, given that the, the application successfully activated or triggered, what would be the likelihood of the, the driver or the system successfully intervening to prevent the crash? For each of those two questions, we, we didn't say yes or no as an answer. We tried to give a, um, a best estimate of the likelihood um, between highly unlikely, um, say 0 to 20% of um, probability of the driver or system intervening successfully, through to highly likely, upwards of 80%. By quoting a range, it, it avoided um, assigning a precision to our answer that re we really couldn't justify based on a, an expert evaluation of the crashes that, that we were doing. And then we combine those two likelihoods, the intervention likelihood and the crash prevention likelihood, to get an overall estimated effectiveness for each of the crashes we assessed. And we assessed each crash against the applicable technologies that we thought would have a capability or within the parameters of the technology to prevent that, potentially prevent that crash. In total, we addressed 72 crashes. It would have been good to do more, but it's a, it was an extremely time-consuming process taking sometimes upwards of two hours per crash to understand the crash in sufficient detail and to be able to make um, a best guess at what, whether the technology might have been likely to prevent it. However, we felt this was a, this was a good number 
um, and, and we, we're fairly confident about the results and I'll, I'll tell you why a little bit later on. Once we'd evaluated the individual technologies against the individual real-world crashes, we wanted to extrapolate that to the entire fleet. Now the important thing to emphasise once again is we, we, we assume that all light vehicles would be fitted with, with the technology in question that we were evaluating. It wasn't, we, we didn't extend the scope to heavy vehicles or, um, or, or any of the other technologies involving uh, vehicle to other objects like pedestrian or cyclist. It was just to the light vehicle fleet. And that comprises something of the order of about um, probably 30,000, 30 to 35,000 serious injuries every year across Australia and New Zealand. The data set that we had access to was for the used car safety ratings, which is a project many of you may know about. This, the subset that we picked from this was light vehicle fatal and serious crashes between 2009 and 2013 inclusive. It's a five year period. For various technical reasons, we only could use New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia off the, the eight Australian jurisdictions because of the way that we coded the crash type meant that it was not possible to match up crashes from Tasmania, South Australia, the ACT and Northern Territory. Nevertheless, that represents about 84% of Australian fatality and serious injury crashes. And we had all of the fatal and serious injury crashes for that period to light vehicles in New Zealand. So what we did then was we looked at the, how the individual crashes were represented by their crash type and scaled those up to represent the whole of the jurisdiction and get an estimate for the potential savings in the long term across the whole of Australia and New Zealand. Here's the results. It's quite a, quite a complex table, but I'll run through it. These are the connected applications. We looked at cooperative forward collision warning, which is a technology to prevent same direction crashes where the vehicles communicate with one another and if a vehicle at the, towards the head of a queue begins to slow rapidly or is stopped, it communicates its speed and position to vehicles around it and most importantly to vehicles behind it. And then the vehicles behind when they detect a potential collision or detect that their vehicle is on a potential collision path to the vehicle in front, it transmits a warning to the driver and this could be an audio warning or a visual warning or a combination of the both and warns the driver that they need to slow down. And we need to emphasize that there's no um, automated intervention with any of the four technologies on this, this chart here, this slide. It's fully up to the driver to respond. And we took that into account when we evaluated the potential benefits. The other three are curved speed warning, which is a, a vehicle to infrastructure technology where the infrastructure at the side of the road on a curve will provide the vehicle with an estimate of the safe speed for negotiation of that curve, given the weather conditions and the curvature of the, of the bend, and once again issue a warning to the driver if they're travelling at too high a speed for the curve. It also prevents, as well as runoff road to the, to the left and right, it also prevents head-on crashes because it prevents the driver from leaving the carriageway as well. The next two are both intersection assistance crashes. Intersection movement assist prevents the right angle crashes at intersections. And right turn assist, which is left turn assist for those of you in countries where you drive on the right, prevents those crashes where an oncoming vehicle turning across traffic has a collision with through vehicles. The percent reductions were very encouraging, um, even for even for these systems which are which are assist, uh, driver assistance only. Many they provide warnings to the driver only. We noted benefits of, of upwards of 20 to 30 percent of the of individual of, per crash type. 
Property forward collision warning, we estimated to prevent between 20 and 30%, same with curb speed warning. Intersection movement assist, between 35 and 50%, and right turn assist between 25 and 40%. Even though the last two are similar, the right turn assist is probably slightly less effective because it relies on being able to predict when a vehicle's going to turn across traffic. And current right turn assist systems rely on the driver using the indicator to detect that, that the driver is intending to turn across traffic, which means that those drivers that don't use their indicator, the system wouldn't activate for this particular crash type. Extrapolating the benefits to the whole of Australia and New Zealand, we noted most significantly for intersection movement assist, something between about 950 and 1500 crashes could be prevented each year from intersection movement assist. So very valuable in, in preventing this type of crash. Right turn assist between 550 and about 850 and cooperative forward collision warning between 500 and 800. Curve speed warning is worth, it's worth noting. It, it, it does have significant potential, as, as we suggest, to be 20 to 30% of individual crashes, but the necessity to have the infrastructure fitted at all curves is clearly impractical. And we made the assumption for this uh, particular assessment that we'd only look at those crashes uh, on curves on highways and freeways, so major roads rather than minor roads. And, of course, a large proportion of these sorts of this particular crash type does occur on the less, the less populated roads of which there are hundreds of thousands of kilometres across Australia and New Zealand. So the benefits for that particular technology, we only estimated at between 80 and 120 because there are a lot, there, there's such a high proportion of crashes off the major roads. For New Zealand, once again, intersection movement assist had significant potential to prevent between maybe 70 and 100 FSI crashes per year with right turn assist coming a close second with 30 to 50, 30 to about 55 crashes each year. Cooperative forward collision warning has lesser benefits in Australia because the, the, the same direction crash type is less prevalent in New Zealand, but still between 15 and 25 FSI per year could be prevented in New Zealand. And curve speed warning, partly for the same reason as in Australia, only 10 to 20 annual serious injury crashes could be prevented in New Zealand. For automated driving applications, we, we evaluated two of these applications. Lane keeping assist, which is already fitted to some vehicles. And the, the version of lane keep assist that we evaluated was a more advanced version of what's, for, what's currently fitted to the, the number of production vehicles now. Most lane keep assist systems now will only warn the driver as you drift over the, the, the edge line or the centre line of the road. Sometimes I'll provide some sort of um, either a haptic warning of vibration through the steering wheel or potentially a slight steering input. However, the lane keep assist that we evaluated was what's called the type 3 lane keep assist, which actively keeps the vehicle in the centre of the lane. However, it does require the driver to keep their hands on the wheel, so it's still technically a, a level 2 system. Auto emergency braking is once again fitted, increasingly fitted to, um, to a, larger num a large number of vehicles now. However, most of the current systems, but increasingly um, the higher speed AEBs being fitted, most current systems are low speed AEBs, so they only work, uh, I think it's sometimes called city brake, but they mostly only work at low speeds, up to 30 to 40 kilometres an hour, maybe 50 kilometres an hour. The AEB that we evaluated was AEB that worked across the full speed range, so it would prevent highway same direction crashes as well as, as, well as city based ones. 
applying it to the, the, the applicable crashes in our real-world crash database, we evaluated the potential benefits of lane keep assist, which of course works on any road where the line markings are sufficiently good. That's another, another thing worth qualifying, actually. We only made the assumption that a centre line marking would be required, or one edge line. And a lot of lane keep assist systems in the, um, previously have relied on having clearly defined edge and centre lines, so defining the edges of the lane. However, the system that we, we the semi-hypothetical system that we assumed that would be in existence would only require only require a single a single line, whether it be a centre line or one edge line. And that, of course, raises its um, its sphere of application to quite a lot more of the road network. And that's why um, we can get quite more quite better much better benefits out of it. Nevertheless, we estimated between about 25 and 40 percent of our sample of real world crashes could have been prevented with lane keep assist and AEB between 35 and 50%. Interestingly, we, we compared AEB with some uh, previously published evaluations using mass crash data and found we, we got about similar results looking at our real world sample compared to the, the mass crash estimates, which also suggest benefits of around between 30 and 60% for AEB, which gave us a bit of confidence that the method that we were using was reasonably robust. Across Australia, we estimate um, and Lane Keep Assist probably has the best benefits of any of the technologies across Australia and New Zealand with between about 1,400 and 2,200 annual serious injury crashes preventable with full fleet take-up. AEB also very beneficial with about 1,200 to 1,900 serious crashes annually and in New Zealand also some excellent benefits with between 160 and 250 for Lane Keep Assist and between 35 and 55 for AEB, the full, full range AEB that we're evaluating. Overall, then, some, some fairly substantial benefits. However, uh, as part of the process, we identified a number of barriers to implementation and also some significant human factors issues that are likely to arise. And before I talk about these in detail, it's, it's really difficult to, to say how any of these might work in the longer term because CITS, although there are a number of trials of connected vehicle technologies around the world, they really have, are using relatively small numbers of vehicles. I think the biggest study is the 1500 car one at the um, arm tree in Michigan. So we don't really know what the, what the dynamics of these systems might be when we have whole vehicle fleets operating together and, and all interacting with one another and how the systems will be able to respond and provide appropriate warnings to the drivers when they're receiving dozens, perhaps hundreds of signals. CITS systems also require very high accuracy positioning. The, the current default GPS standards of plus or minus between three and, and possibly even 10 or 15 metres in urban areas in particular are not going to be sufficient in order to, um, to position vehicles accurately enough to be able to make extrapolations of paths to conflict. And in the same way, we also require very low latency communications. The standard mobile network, the 4G network as it is now, doesn't focus on low latency. You could get delays of hundreds of milliseconds in messages being transferred between vehicles and that means that, um, that by the time the message is being received by the vehicle, your vehicle could have travelled another three to ten metres in the process and that makes it um, a lot more difficult. It's likely that to get the required low latency we could have to move to dedicated short range communication networks like the 5.9 gigahertz spectrum that's being trialled around the world and possibly the 5G standard might also be able to satisfy this requirement. 
Probably most importantly though is the need to have a common standard so that vehicles can communicate with one another using common protocols and, and be able to interpret one another's messages unambiguously. And this is something that, that uh, NHTSA, I believe, are, are in the process of, of legislating at the moment. But in Australia and New Zealand, there haven't, hasn't been much progress towards um, creating a, a, um, a standard that every vehicle can operate to. And it's also, a lot, it's difficult when we're talking about individual manufacturers. It's much easier for a manufacturer to develop their own technology, perhaps with their tier one partners in-house, rather than um, developing a common standard, which is a lot more difficult and requires a longer time frames and, and a lot more cooperation. There's also a number of security and potentially privacy impacts with these technologies as well. By their nature, they're communicating a lot of information about each other to and from either roadside base stations that potentially are accessible by the road authorities and also between vehicles as well. And the legislative environment is probably a long way behind the technology environment in this, in this um, aspect. And I think it'll be some time before the, the technology and, the, and the, sorry, the legislative environment catches up to provide suitable legislation to protect drivers and also the issue of liability as well. If the vehicle's in control, uh, maybe it's the, is it the vehicle and all the vehicle manufacturer that's responsible when a crash occurs? And I think we need to identify um, in the future whereabouts the driver's responsibility ends and that responsibility transfers somewhere else. As Chris mentioned, the automated technologies, so the connected technologies, because of their, their requirements for this inter-vehicle interoperability and also inter interfacing with the road network itself, might mean that they eventually converge with automated driving and become a supplementary system to assist the automated technologies, which by their very nature uh, only really see the vehicle around them, using different senses to, to what humans use, but also but they really only see their own immediate environment and they could benefit from some augmentation from the connected technologies. Automated driving also um, will depend very heavily and the level of automation will depend on the complexity of the driving environment. I think we'll see that level four automation will become probably fairly common fairly soon when we can choose the road environments that we can allow the systems to activate on. However, level five automation, where the vehicle by definition can operate on any road, anywhere at any time, in any, any weather condition, is likely to take a little bit longer. Um, in fact, I, I suspect substantially longer, but um, I'm open to answering questions on that. Um, Finally, we'll also require um, high-definition 3D road mapping to augment some of the, the systems that the sensors are going to be sending through. And we'll also need um, enhanced cellular network coverage and, once again, suitable policy and legal frameworks in order to support the, the automated driving technologies and that divestment of responsibility from the driver to other um, players in the system. We didn't go into the human factors issues in, in detail, but there are a number of issues and I think it's really not possible to understand um, whereabouts these might lie. There's been a number of simulator studies done to investigate some of these, or they're beginning to be done. But I think we really don't know what's going to happen um, once the, the take-up of these vehicles becomes more widespread and, and we know that human nature can be quite interesting in the way it applies itself in certain situations. We identified both technology over-reliance um, when drivers are required to regain vehicle control after being spending long periods um, allowing the vehicle to be in control and also if people have to use a non-equipped vehicle when they become accustomed to using a, um, a vehicle where um, that all these technologies are available. 
There could be driver overload um, from monitoring system status or also underload or loss of vigilance potentially leading to reduced situation awareness and also difficulties coping with sudden demand increase. And this is when the technologies at level three in particular and possibly level four are required to hand control back to the driver and the driver is, requires a certain amount of time to resume control of the vehicle and also to, to take in the environment around them and, um, and regain proper control. There's also driver distraction. Once you stop paying attention to the road, you have issues where your, your attention can be drawn away from critical information or you engage in distracting activities while supposedly supervising an automated vehicle. And finally, we've got drivers maybe failing to trust or accept the technologies, potentially leading to system misuse or disuse, and also loss of driver skill in the longer term, where it could lead to problems in the event of automation failures and the, the necessary resumption of manual control subsequent to that. Finally, just to summarise, we found overall we're, we're pretty confident that there will be substantial reductions in road trauma with a combination or any one or combination of these connected and automated vehicle technologies. In particular, intersection movement assist we think has the potential to prevent between a third and a half of intersection fatal and serious injury crashes, which is um, a really, really good benefit. Um, these crashes constitute a very significant proportion of all FSI crashes and therefore this technology could have significant benefits. Automated, automated emergency braking, both high and low speed, could also prevent a, a significant proportion of same direction crashes. Putting all of them together, we, we combined five of the six technologies because cooperative forward collision warning and AEB have similar, similar um, functions. So we, we just looked at AEB plus the um, lane keep assist and the other three connected vehicle technologies and a very rough estimate is that we could prevent possibly between about four and six and a half thousand fatal and serious injury crashes each year in Australia and between about 310 and 495, sorry 485 per annum in New Zealand and this represents between about a fifth and a third of all Australian FSI crashes and between 17 and about 30 percent in New Zealand. So the benefits are definitely there. It's just going to be a case of deploying these technologies in a, in a way that we try and avoid some of the potential downsides from the technological, legal, policy and human factors issues. So I think in summary, this report fairly clearly and, and using a, a relatively new method of evaluation realistically demonstrates the benefits and we think sets the scene for a lot of future research, particularly into the, some of the complexities of how the safety situation might evolve as we gradually evolve these vehicles through the fleet. Just to put it in perspective, into perspective, if 100% of all new light vehicles are fitted with some or all of these technologies from today, there would still be at least 20 years in Australia and New Zealand before the fleet turnover, given that there's no change in fleet turnover, evolved to the extent where we have every vehicle fitted with these technologies. So it's clearly a fairly long path before we get, these, get to the point of 100% take-up. And it'll be important to investigate how well we can how we can most effectively take that path and get the safety benefits that I think these technologies show we have the potential to do. That's it for now. Um, Chris and I are both happy to answer any of your questions as much as we can um, in the time that we have available. Thanks, Elise. 
Thank you, Chris and David, for taking your time to present. Lots of interesting information you've covered. So we received a large number of questions from the audience, and we thank you for sending these through. Uh, the first question is that we've received is, I run a dementia driving clinic. Do you see any legislative bars to having non-licensed, i.e. former drivers as front seaters or sole occupants of driverless cars? Or would a licensed driver as monitor be required? Um, uh, would you like me to start with this one, David? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's Chris here. Uh, yeah, look, this was a this is a question that we asked as part of our registration and licensing uh, investigation earlier in this year, and uh, um, is also the subject of some debate uh, at the moment through the National Transport Commission's um, discussion paper on reforming driver laws. Um, if you think about vehicle automation, there are potentially going to be some cases where uh, we will have highly automated vehicles which don't feature a driver control at all. And some of the concepts I'm talking about there are things like the driverless shuttle buses that a number of Australian jurisdictions are trialling, or uh, potentially the concept such as Waymo, the Google subsidiary is trialling, which is an automated uh, taxi. Um, in those cases uh, where there are no driver controls, um, driver licensing is probably going to uh, need to change significantly or not apply at all. Um, your role as an occupant perhaps becomes more like a passenger on a plane where you need to understand, say, emergency exit procedures. With vehicles where there is a handover or transition of control, um, there are potentially uh, a range of new challenges that vehicle automation presents, such as uh, being ready for that request to intervene, which David referred to, um, or understanding the limitations of the technology that's, that's automating the vehicle itself. Um, at this stage, there isn't a significant body of evidence to suggest what those likely changes would be to driver licensing um, regimes, but it's something that we'll need to continue to watch. However, what I would note is where a driver is required to complete some part of the trip, so for example in the case of a vehicle where the, the, the vehicle um, is only automated on, say, a freeway or motorway part of the network. Um, the driver is expected to retake control at the end of that part of the trip. Driver licensing um, requirements will still apply, and, a, and a, um, as the driver still needs to have the, the core skills of um, or core competencies in that they need for normal road access. Okay, thank you, Chris. Did you have anything uh, to add on that? Uh, David? No, I think Chris covered it pretty well. I think um, I, I, my, um, and, and this is a, a professional opinion, I think that any vehicle that does have even the, um, the remotest possibility of being able to hand control back to the driver and therefore has, has vehicle control, I think we'll need to have some form of licensing in order to operate it. But as Chris said, once you, once you have no control for the occupant, it, they become an occupant just like they do in, um, in the driverless trains and driverless other driverless vehicles that we have now. Excellent. Uh, a second question that we received is why is road trauma not assessed in terms of vehicles kilometres travelled? Uh, it's, it kind of is by implication because the vehicle kilometres travelled is one controller of the, the level of trauma um, that's experienced in a jurisdiction. 
I guess if you think about it this way, the, the, the total number of, of fatal and serious injury crashes is a product of the risk per crash, and that's going to be a very small risk across the whole population, and the number of the exposure to that particular crash type. And the reason that we look at the whole of trauma on its own is because that's the key measure. And that's what we're trying to reduce in Australia and New Zealand and across the world is uh, the number of actual absolute number of fatal and serious injury crashes. In Australia in particular, we're not so concerned about crash rates. Um, which is why we just look at the at absolute numbers and try and reduce those. So vehicle kilometres travelled is, is incorporated there in the background, but we focus on, on whole trauma levels. Excellent. Thanks for clarifying that one, David. Another question is we received from Michael. Uh, so he asked, how can we have level four or five automation that relies on connectivity? Connectivity could be lost for a variety of reasons. Uh, okay, um, I might just yeah, start with this one. Um, sure. Yeah, um, so just when it comes to connectivity, um, there are a couple of components to it. First of all, um, connectivity is likely to be needed for highly automated vehicles uh, or more item, highly automated vehicles. In the case of uh, updating features in vehicles such as the data like high definition maps, or road assets or attributes that might have changed on the road network, such as speed zone changes, uh, road works, or changes to traffic conditions that the vehicle needs to use to predict its uh, safe travel path. However, it's it's not likely that, that this information would need need to be absolutely live the whole time. There are ways that um, companies are able to broadcast this in packets of information. Um, However, when it comes to connectivity, such as between vehicles to vehicles, these are established through what are called portable networks. So there are dedicated networks that are like a peer-to-peer -peer exchange of information, and these don't necessarily require um, the connectivity of cellular networks. They can operate just on their own between, say, a device like a phone and a, um, and a vehicle, or a vehicle and a vehicle, or a vehicle and a traffic signal, for example. Okay, excellent. David, did you have anything to add on that one? Um, no, only to say that I think it's, it's probably going to be likely that where there's going to be levels of redundancy built into all of these systems, I think. I, don't, I think it's hardly likely that a, that a vehicle is going to rely entirely on being connected to other vehicles. It, my um, my view is that I think even in the event that the vehicle relies fully on connected technologies, it will still need to have some sort of um, proximity sensing or or lidar or something to become to be reasonably aware of its environment in the event that the connectivity fails or, or some internal system fails. Okay, excellent. Thanks for clarifying that one. So we have two questions for David. First question is, how will this affect the driver licensing process over the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, I think Chris has probably covered that in, a, in his previous uh, answer because I think that's really an issue for licensing. We didn't evaluate licensing and there was an Austroad project covering that. Chris? Uh, yeah, look, I think, yeah, probably go back to those comments I, um, I went to before. Um, as I say, this is a rapidly emerging area and um, one in which, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, um, at some of these human factors uh, studies that David covered to understand what they might mean for our driver licensing systems. Excellent. 
Uh, the second question is, do you think we should be teaching new drivers, riders about this technology now to drive earlier demand and ensure that they know the benefits? Uh, yes, I, I think it's certainly worth doing. And I, I, I read a report or a study recently that said that car dealers in particular tend to lack a bit of knowledge as to how these systems work and, and sometimes lack the ability to explain their benefits and the limitations in particular to drivers. And it's becoming an increasing problem that the, the owner's manuals of cars are becoming more and more complex as these technologies start to become more common. So I think there are some significant challenges in, in raising public awareness and getting people used to what the systems can do and more importantly what they can't do. But it's not a question I can answer in any more detail than that. Okay, excellent. Thanks for answering that one. So this relates to slide 16 and 17. Uh, so this is potentially beyond the scope of the discussion, but we are looking at CAVs to reduce the fatality rate, but we must accept that these fatalities will not be entirely eliminated under a full automated scenario, where the vehicles are under some scenario, under some scenarios the cause. So the question is, what then becomes an acceptable societal and legal fatality rate? Ah, that's, a, that's an ethical question or a moral question, I think. But in Australia and New Zealand, uh, we've, we're really subscribing to this towards zero philosophy where we say that it's not acceptable to have any fatalities or any seriously injured people on the road system. That's clearly a long way until we can achieve that ideal. But what it really says to us is that we have to keep thinking of innovative solutions that focus on the potential to eliminate all fatalities and serious injuries. The technologies that we're talking about will get us some way towards that, but I think it's, it's more a moral, uh, sorry, a moral standpoint that we can't say we'll accept a certain number. We always have to work towards whatever that residual will end up being, whether it's 30% or 10% or 5%. We have to work to eliminate that residual in some way, and that will probably lead to solutions that we haven't even thought of because we don't know what the characteristics of that, that residual, no matter how small or large it will be, are at the moment. So it's a, it's, a, it's a question that we really can only answer philosophically and I think it drives the direction of the research or it will drive the direction of the research in the future. Excellent, thanks for clarifying that one. So in regards to slide 24, does this only apply to vehicle occupants or other road users? It only applies to vehicle occupants at this stage. The technologies that we, that we selected were all for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle crashes. Um, and we, we didn't look at them. Um, we, we looked at a number of pedestrian applications that um, had the potential to prevent um, impacts with pedestrians, cyclists, and motorcyclists. However, we weren't able to evaluate those due to the constraints of the project. But there's likely to be, um, and also because the, the, the pedestrian fatality problem in particular is only about uh, 10 to 12 percent of all fatal and serious injury, motorcyclists are a bit higher. But those, we, we simply didn't, weren't able to prioritise those and it would be good to look at those in the future. But this is all just vehicle occupants at this stage. Thank you for clarifying that one. So another question is that we received is, do you envisage that safety regulators will licence level four to five vehicles, especially trucks to operate on common road infrastructure along with level one, two and three vehicles? or will require separate road infrastructure? Chris? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, 
This is a uh, really good question um, and is something uh, that is the subject of a lot of discussion and debate at the moment um, internationally and in Australia. Um, first of all, I mean just to, to deal with the concept of entry to the Australian market and what that might look like. Um, at the moment we have an Australian design rule system which uh, provides regulations around the safe uh, occupant protection, braking, lighting, um, vehicle emission standards for vehicles. This ADR system doesn't currently envisage uh, automated driving applications, although it may do that in the future. So what is being proposed uh, nationally at the moment is what is known as a safety assurance system or a system that may apply specifically to um, vehicles that are uh, automated um, beyond perhaps level three or level four systems. Um, that system would, would in fact apply a new range of um, criteria that would ensure the safe um, ensure the safe op uh, design of a vehicle uh, before it can access the Australian market. Um, however, that goes also goes to what about um, the specific case of say heavy vehicles and whether they need specific infrastructure and the safety assurance system doesn't necessarily deal with that um, because it's more it's more broad. Um, this I think will come down to what the emerging automated vehicle application looks like um, and whether it does require any specific um, infrastructure. Now uh, we've seen that potentially in the case of heavy vehicle platoons. There may be uh, where you have a, 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 a electronic coupling of heavy heavy vehicles, such as being demonstrated in the U.S. and um, and the Netherlands, where you have vehicles that um, say uh, 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 40 to 50 meters long in that platoon, and that may change the way in which vehicles merge onto a freeway or say change lanes around those those vehicles. So whether that that requires that vehicle to be in a specific lane. Uh, or there to be other operating rules around how um, how other uh, how those platoons form and where they can do that um, is the subject of, of a lot of trials and research at the moment. It's something we don't necessarily have the answer to right now, but it's something that we want to continue to explore. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. Another question is. Uh, from Colin, so he says, I saw the slide listing levels of automation from memory. I would be looking towards level four or five. Do you have a notional timetable for each of these levels? Um, look, uh, levels, uh, the, the best people to really predict this are the ones that are uh, designing the, and, and delivering the technology and that's the auto, automobile and technology companies. Uh, and from our discussions with them, um, it's likely that we'll see, and this is I guess our interpretation of what they tell us, um, we'd likely see level four vehicles perhaps that can automate some part of the journey on motorways in the next three to five years. Um, that's, that's I think some of the more bold estimates. Um, it's further out for other companies, it, it really just depends on who you speak to there. As I mentioned, there are also level four vehicles that are currently deployed in the market, such as the low-speed shuttle buses, which don't require a driver at all. Um, and so it's not quite a linear time frame in terms of how these vehicles uh, will come to the network, but um, I, I, I'd say that is my best interpretation of what we're seeing at the moment. 
Excellent. Thanks for that, Chris. The last question that we have is in regards to slide 24. So statistically, does 72 accidents of the study represent driving patterns of all light vehicle drivers of the study group? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, not necessarily, but we think that it represents a fairly good spread. The, the crashes in the ANSYS database are, um, are, are quite realistically spread between urban and rural. They cover a wide range of vehicle types, they cover a wide range of driver types and ages, and a number of them were, were um, fatigued, there were a number that were under the influence of prescription drugs, which is, which is quite common um, when you do any of these studies, you find a lot of people are taking a lot of medications, particularly as they get older for cholesterol and a number of other things. So there's, we didn't do a test to see how representative it was, because that would be a very complex process, but we were fairly confident that the, that the sample that we have there is, re is a reasonably good estimate. And part of the way that we, we allow for that is that we have this a range of scores, rather than just saying yes or no, the crash was able to be prevented, we, we do a range from 80 to 100% right down to 0 to 20%. So we're looking at a fairly broad band of, of saying yes or no, and that kind of accounts for the fact there could be some um, biases or distortions in there. Probably the only thing really worth noting about that real-world database is that it tends to be more drivers who weren't at fault in the crash who participate. The participation is, is of course, voluntary, as with all of our studies, and we tend to get better participation rates from people who were, tended to be not at fault rather than at fault. So, no, it's not, um, not representative, but we feel it's a pretty good mix, certainly from an environmental and age and, um, and vehicle point of view. Okay, thank you David and Chris for answering all these questions. So unfortunately we'll have to start wrapping up this session due to time, but um, before I close up, I would like to let you know about some kind of upcoming webinars that we have lined up. So as you can see on the slide, we'll be running a webinar on road transport management framework and principles in a few days time, which is on the 26th of October. In November, we'll also be running webinars for different parts of the Guide to Traffic Management and Guide to Road Design, outlining the changes that have been made to the guides, as well as a webinar based on concept of operations. So you can simply go on our website to register for these events. Uh, so to our audience, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this session and got something out of it. Feel free to get in contact with us if you do have any further questions. So as we close this session, we'd love your feedback on how we can improve these webinars as well as any other topics you may like us to cover. So if you could please fill out a survey which will pop up after the session. So thank you Chris and David again for your time. It's our pleasure. Cheers, no problems. Thank you. Have a good day everyone and enjoy the rest of your day.